0: <clears throat> All right, so uh, we had gotten started uh, talking about some of the things that you'd done and read, and we were mentioning the Vasudi but in there you were talking about that there were two. Uh, Ways of of thinking are two different mind states. One is a more natural and then the other is the observer. And uh, so we started talking about the fact that there's actually three sections of the human brain that correspond to three different ego states and also three different modes of operation. And that it's good that we start paying attention to the fact that we are not a uh, a unified object, that we're kind of a crowd until the crowd starts to work together. Okay, so we have um, the anterior, uh, or excuse me, the posterior. This is the anterior, the up front. I got corrected by a student, the posterior brain actually is referred to as a reptilian brain because it looks very much like the brain of an alligator or a snake. And so everything that an alligator can do, our reptilian brain does those things, which means controlling the body, chewing food, digesting food, blinking eyes, um, uh, breathing heart. uh, beating heart, breathing, walking, all of the kind of things that an alligator can do. You and you can do it. You do it with the part of the brain that the alligator has. But there's an awful lot of stuff an alligator can't do. And one of those is communication, which we normally have now with humans is a very, very sophisticated language, but that normally alligators don't do a lot of communicating with each other. They just do Um, competition because they're solely driven by the survival instinct, the self-preservation instinct and other instincts like nesting instinct and uh, territorial instinct and procreation instinct are the primary instincts and that all of these instincts are operated out of the reptilian brain which means that the, uh, this the reptilian brain is basically the source of feelings and the primary feeling that we operate on. The number one feeling of life form is the feeling of fear. Why? Because fear is that mechanism or the, the, the language or the vocabulary of the self-preservation instinct that we react immediately or get eaten. There's the quick and the dead. And that's an important uh, biological feature. Yes, it's an important biological feature. It's kept us alive. That kids walk out right into the road to play ball unless they become afraid and somebody honks their horn and the kid wakes up, he becomes afraid and he doesn't go chase the ball, which means he doesn't get hit by the car. Fear has been keeping us alive, each individual one, as well as the entire species. But there's a better way to do it. That is with wisdom, not get into dangerous situations so that we don't have to experience fear. Okay, so we have basic mechanisms in there, Uh, and and one of the mechanisms would be a set of rules. Oh, thou shalt not go into the road without looking both ways. Now we're talking about the mammalian brain, or we're talking about the nesting instinct which is very, very strong in mammals, but not so strong in reptiles. OK, and it's also not um, the other instinct is territorial instinct. And you see animals like wolves and dogs have very strong territorial instinct. They also have methods of communication. The communication systems between dogs is just remarkable. I've got a couple here and have been around dogs my my whole life, and I learned a lot about dogs from in my childhood, being around the adults who knew a lot about dogs. And what I've come to find is dogs are really, really good teachers when it comes to operating both instinctually and also see that our language system that we're using right now in the concepts of humans and talking about the Dhamma actually has its foundation in our uh, mammal past.
1: Would you say then that the, the mammalian brain is a higher level of function than the reptilian brain then?
0: Absolutely. And it took millions of years of the development of the reptilian brain to come up to the level of the mammalian brain.
1: But you say that there's three. So there's the, the human brain. Yes. On top of it.
0: yes. Okay. So what we're talking about is the mammalian brain then would uh, what Eric Byrne calls the parent ego state and what um, uh, Freud calls the superego and what the Buddha calls sila Bhatta paramasa. Sila Bhatta paramasa sila okay yeah. and what and sila are the rules and uh uh paramasa actually means the attachments to Okay, that we become attached to the way that things are done. In other words, when we as a child, when we hear the parent bussing at the child and teaching the child, the child stores that not in their child ego state, they store that in their newly developing parent ego state. They're mimicking the parent. In psychology, we sometimes call it playing the old tapes doing things the way that we were told to do them. This is the, uh, the mid-range. And in fact, uh, much of our thinking, pro- uh, in fact, almost all of our verbal thinking process is done in this part of the brain, the temporal lobe. this part. The frontal part is what we would then call the adult, which is also what we would say is the ability to make connections and put things together and understand in a way that that animals like monkeys and dogs cannot do. Okay.
1: Complex thought
0: and analysis. Like like analysis and thoughts and also we could just say as as much as connecting the dots. Okay. An example of that is uh, little kids are giving drawings that are incomplete, like the drawing of a chicken. And t- but the drawing will have the face and maybe the tail feathers, but the body of the chicken, you've got to trace the line from dot one to dot two to dot three to dot four. okay. This is actually teaching the child to develop their um, frontal cortex to be able to connect the dots. So that's the simplest way that we can do it. but when you're an adult, you go around connecting the dots all, t- all the time putting things together, making things uh, uh, fit and understanding. But then the story that we tell about that understanding is told in verbal and stored in the parent ego state. Okay. So the parent ego state is mostly just storage. It's, it's kind of like memory, except that memories are stored both by the parent and the child, but the child stores memories in the same in the sense of feelings. So we store old feelings that in fact, uh, um, shell shock, which then became uh, battle fatigue, and then eventually came post-traumatic stress disorder, is in fact, What we're talking about here is that the child inside actually does more than than experience things in the moment, but it stores feelings. And it does this in a mechanism that you could see that um, if something is light and airy and easygoing, there's no reason to remember it, it's got no value for, for preservation. However, if a trauma happens, The child is in danger. The child gets freaked out. Then the child is more likely to remember that. Why? Why is it that we wind up remembering all of the bad things that happened to us and we more or less forget all of the good stuff?
1: They made a deeper impression on our
0: neurons and our brains. Why? Because it did exactly that. That's precisely correct um but it's also just an interesting way of saying it but you're right um here's an example of that and that is is that little johnny is drawing on the wall with his crayons the white wall of the rented room mom goes in and sees that and instead of looking at the artwork that he's doing she freaks out about wall getting painted right She could have and told him what nice artwork that is. And we'll go get an art set and you'll become a Rembrandt. But instead, she yells at the kid for drawing on the wall, makes him clean it off. And for the rest of his life, he's a terrible artist.
2: I can
1: see that. That's I can see that as definitely truth.
0: Mm -hmm. So this is what happens with us. And sometimes those events happen a big one that just is life transforming but mostly it's a buildup of just the same old thing mom behaves the same way day after day after day after day and we kind of pick that up we also rebel against it and so now we've got two things going on and that is is that we go around telling ourselves things to do from the parent ego state and then we rebel against it in the child ego state and the adult is just not around. If the adult was available, it would wake up to see what the parent and the child were doing to cause this internal conflict and the adult would step in and, and fix the situation. So this is the problem is, is that when we get into this internal dialogue between you should do this, I don't want to do that, or you ought to go to town, I don't want to go to town, or you ought to go vote, I don't want to vote, or whatever it is, got to go to the hospital and get your vaccine, I don't want to go to the hospital and get a vaccine. That kind of dialogue that's going on inside the mind of us all happens actually with meditation too. I want to meditate. You should go meditate. I don't want to meditate. You're watching YouTube. You would be better off if you go meditate. I don't want to meditate. And now we're not even watching YouTube. We're just in an internal conflict.
1: I do find myself talking to myself a lot. And I, I catch myself ever since I started meditating, I catch myself like what am I doing? It's it's like imaginary. I That's why I tell myself like pointing out imaginary things like fear and stuff like that. It's imaginary. It's all mind.
0: Okay, so in one way, we could say. That. um, We have been spending our whole lives that way, talking ourselves into feeling bad. So now it's time to start talking ourselves into feeling good.
2: This is Anapanasati. And anapanasati is the practice
0: of the Buddha, which is not noting that most specifically, go ahead. I'm sorry, I
1: was going to say, you know, uh, my first foray in the meditation where I got that realization was using noting, but ever since then i've I don't know, the noting has seemed to like drop away. It's not as important as the moment, like fully experiencing the moment. And so lately I've been doing in my meditation, just focusing on my breath. And just only the sensations of the breath and only tracking the state of the mind.
0: Okay. Well, there's more to do than tracking the state of mind. In fact, the tracking of the state of mind is the noting.
2: Um, the
0: the issue, though, is that the noting is started too soon in the practice that the student needs a foundation or a preliminary before that. And because of that, it causes all kinds of problems. It's almost like um, an, it becomes an obstacle course because we're not carrying the footstool with us. If we had a footstool, we could put the footstool in place and then we could climb up onto the things that we can't climb up onto without the footstool okay like a
1: scaffold for your practice pardon like a scaffold or like a, a
0: blueprint exactly for your practice. exactly the buddha does not start with the noting he starts with something else completely, and this is, in fact, the whole rationale here of this distinction that we're about to make is the distinction between um, the old Vasudhi Maga and the new interpretation of the Vasudhi Maga that leads into the practice of both Sri Lanka and Burma, which then gives us the Mahasi method. And then there is that which is in the suttas of following what is in the suttas and practicing according to the teachings of the Buddha that bhikkhu buddha Dasa follows. Okay and basically what that is is based upon one beginning ingredient it all starts right at the very beginning and that is this it has to do with the kind of thoughts that we have. Do we have either uh, an open example that I use is critical thoughts Versus nurturing thoughts that almost always we are critically thinking because we learn to be critical of ourselves because our parents were critical of us. Go to school, clean your house, clean your, uh, change your clothes, put your telephone down, do your homework. You know, the whole show. All right. All of the criticism that we got in childhood, we store that up in in kind of memories and go around telling ourselves that we should do this and we should do that. And naturally, with deep inside, we rebel against all of that stuff. So this is one kind of critical thinking. the other kind of thinking is what you would call nurturing thinking. Now, this is the kind of thinking that a brand new mom has when a baby is brand newly born, there is actually what is called a bonding chemical. And that bonding chemical that's created in the mind is actually, um, let us say, transported around. So that the women who work on maternity wards, when they want to be there, not during the actual birth, they want to be there when that infant a few minutes later or an hour later, or whatever it takes, when the mom gets the baby. That's the gushy moment where everybody gets gushy. Why? Why does everybody get gushy? It's because the mom is gushy. And she's the one running this show, and what is her gushiness coming from? Is this chemical, mental uh, brain chemical called oxycodone, and it's called the bonding chemical because she bonds with this infant. But then what happens is, is that this bonding continues on for quite a long time, years in fact. So that one of the things that happens is, is that when this baby does his first poopy, everybody's very happy. Two days in, big one. Okay, all this milk the child's been drinking, and now he's done his first poopy, everybody is happy. But if that child is 16 years old and goes and does that poopy on the carpet in the front room, he will not get the same reaction from his mommy, now will he? Mommy has changed.
1: All that oxycodone is gone?
0: Pardon? All that oxycodone is gone? All the oxycodone and the thrill is gone. Tough luck. And what has come into place is, is that mom has listened to the society and believed them that she's now got to train up that child in the way he should go. So when he is old, he will kiss ass. Sorry, mean? that's a Bible quote, but I missed it a little bit. <laughs> uh-huh. So we have to train up these children. And what that means is guide them and punish them and whip them. And don't spare that, Rob. You'll spoil that child.
1: Installing software in their mind.
0: Right. And so all of these years, we have been having software installed in our mind. And that software comes in the form of thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. It's a set of rules. And the child picks up these rules instinctually. Why? Well, actually, you could say, well, yeah, so what? He's not going to be able to pick it up any other way other than instinctually. But if we look at it, we can see that the instincts here are actually the nesting instinct, or also called the herding instinct. And that is the instinct that you've got to go along with the herd in order to survive. You've got to go along to get along. That when the lions attack the wildebeests and the wildebeests herd together, who's the safest wildebeest? So the ones in the middle of the herd. The ones who were on the outside of the pack—they're in a little bit of danger. Those that are strays are certainly in danger.
1: That's very—it's very biological based.
0: It's very biological based. This human stuff that we're doing, okay, and and that—but the human. Is capable of seeing this biological stuff, so that we can start making some repairs along the way. Meditation. And so, pardon? Meditation. That's what the idea is. If we're meditating correctly with the correct instructions, and so um, let's let's go there. But let's take a bit of a detour first about the basis for the instructions. Okay. The entire teachings of the Buddha is based upon a simple phrase that he made that is stated in Sutra number twenty two in the simile of the snake, where he says, I both formerly and now I teach only one thing. Dukkha, dukkha naroda. Now, this is a, a very interesting way of I'm sorry, I didn't hear you.
1: I'm sorry, I'm I'm trying to repeat the words that you say so I can remember them.
0: Duca duka, neroda. What duca neroda means uh, you can hear in the uh, in the Indo-European language kind of thing, Neroda, road, erode. You can hear that road. Neroda means that it just erodes to nil. Okay. Okay. So um Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda is all he teaches, but in the West, because of our critical mind and critical thinking, that that says, all right, uh, that that means that 12 years of school and university is all Dukkha, and then graduate school is Dukkha Naroda. Or that we have to do noting. Noting dukkha, 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 dukkha. I see dukkha, I'm investigating dukkha, I can see some dukkha. I've got insight into dukkha. Let's go deep into the dukkha to find its deep nature. And this is the way that many people practice with the noting. They want to note the dukkha. But the teachings of the Buddha is completely different than that. Because the Buddha says dukkha narodim, which means go out of the dukkha immediately. It's almost in the analogy that I use is the farmer that's walking through the pasture down to the cows. If he's got his eye on the cows and eye on the destination, he's going to be covered in cow shit when he gets there.
1: <laughs> I've never heard that one.
0: But if he watches every step, he can avoid the cow pie. One step at a time. So you look down, you look at where you're going, you look at each thought or each step and not keep the eye on the goal. So Western Buddhism, as well as everything else, has got their eye on a distant goal to where the actual teaching, the practice of the Buddha is what we're doing right this very step, right this very now.
1: I think that's where... I don't know. It felt like I needed to talk to somebody about it because a lot of the stuff I was seeing didn't quite make sense 100%. And I, I really appreciate you explaining some of this.
0: Well, that's the name of the uh, the Buddha. He did not call himself Buddha. He did not call himself the original name of Siddhartha Gotami or Gotama. Nor did he. He was called Sakyamuni uh, of the Sakyan clan. But he never was called Buddha. That happened in the time of sok. What he called himself, referred to himself as, was Tathagatha. Perhaps you've heard that word before, Tathagatha. And it means what? The one who comes and goes? That's exactly wrong. Sorry. No, that's your typical definition. I thought I was I thought I had it. The, the literal translation is uh, uh, ta uh ta means thus or this or here now, right here. This is what it means. Okay, so thus gone one, one who goes to here.
1: So he referred to himself basically like as a form of his own teaching, uh huh. You could say in English that he
0: refers to himself as Mr. Present.
1: That's so funny in light of his teachings that the name means that.
0: Yeah, that's all it means. Just be here now. Bit of Ramdas, a Number bit of person. Eckhart Tolle. This present moment. This is what the teaching is: is to be in this present moment. But not to be in this present moment with all the baggage that we have come, but to really be in this present moment without all the baggage. But most people say be here now means that, yeah, here I am with all my goods and glories and past and feelings and everything. But the right way of recognizing it is when we're really truly here. Now, we didn't bring the past with us and we're not concocting the future. We're just here.
1: Is that when so somebody who is here in the present is free of the uh, hindrances? Absolutely.
2: Are they mutually
1: exclusive? Pardon? Are they mutually exclusive? Are they the same? You have to have well, one with the
0: other? Let us say that um, the, we're working with definitions of words. And we could say it this way that it's a, a sliding scale over a period of time of how many mind moments were spent in hindrance versus how many mind moments were spent in the present moment. So that you can learn to spend time, longer periods of time. You can apply the mind to wholesome and sustain the mind on the wholesome. Okay, so the first teaching that the Buddha gave was not mindfulness or uh, in the sense of the noting. But mindfulness or sati in the sense of waking up and seeing that this thought immediately is unwholesome and to throw it out immediately. Okay, any hindrance that we arise in this present instant, throw that out and be free from it. To apply the mind to this and then keep the mind sustained on the only job we've got is to make sure that each thought is wholesome. One wholesome thought after another, after another. This is the practice of the Buddha, and he gives Anapanasati as a method to do this. That in, that in fact, there's several reasons why breath is used. It's, it's not magical, but it's very practical. Uh, that people in the time of the Buddha were experimenting with breath. That uh, the yoga that we have coming to the West um, out of the Hinduism from the deep past, breathing has been a part of the yoga practice all along. And that uh, the Buddha recognized that there was great value in this. But what we're doing with it is, is that we're using the breathing as um, a method of developing a skill. Because the breathing will just breathe on its own, but when it does, it kind to breathes in a shallow way. And so Anapanasati is, is that we're going to start breathing in a way that has to be done intentionally by controlling the breath. An example of that would be that you cannot control the breath without controlling the mind, and you can't control the mind. If you can't control the mind, you couldn't control the breath. But if you can control your breath, then you can control the mind. And by doing this, you're actually developing two different skills. The skill of breathing correctly and the skill of keeping the mind focused on the breathing at least enough to get started.
1: I have found that that is a lot. Since I haven't been doing formal meditation as much because I've just graduated from school, um, being more mindful throughout the days has definitely made a bigger difference. Like just using my breath, I would say like my total time being more present is much greater now than it's ever been.
0: Absolutely good. I would appreciate that. So what we need to do then is we need to look at, for a moment, the definition of the word meditation, because you just brought that up. Western right. mentality has the idea of meditation as a particular room, like a meditation hall, with with cushions arranged in a certain way, and everybody goes in and behaves in a certain way in this room. They sit down. With arm folded, legs folded, eyes closed, all facing in the, into the front. Uh, this got possibly a dais with a Buddha Rupa or a monk or something up there. Okay, this is what people think of with meditation. This is one of the reasons why I am reluctant to use the word because it gives that cue. Anapanasati is all about breathing. That's what the word anapana means, in and out breathing. In fact, it's exactly the same word as pranayana, which the Hindus use because it's in Sanskrit. Pranayana is exactly anapana with a couple of R's in the thing backwards. Okay, so anapana is the Pali and pranayana is the Sanskrit, and we're talking about the same thing. But with within the practice of the Buddha, we're talking about it in the sense of sati for a particular skill. To where all of this deep breathing and everything like that, the, uh, the Hindu um, uh, yogis who were practicing this as if it were the end to itself. Rather than as a method of skill development. So you could say it like this, a piano is just a piano. But it is also a mechanism for skill development for a, a budding pianist. Without the pianist, you're not going to have the skill of piano playing. Okay, so the uh, the breath, rather than just something to control, is something to be controlled to learn the skill of controlling the breath, which is the skill of sati. Sati is actually waking up. We in English we use the word mindfulness, and that's just one of many bad translations of the word. Sati actually has a whole lot more to do with remembering to wake up, to remember to wake up into the present moment, to be here now. Or another one would be to wake up and to uh, recollect and recall what have been the thoughts that I had a tenth of a second ago. Or what am I thinking now? What kind of thoughts am I having right now? Are these wholesome thoughts or these unwholesome thoughts? Are these critical thoughts or are these nurturing thoughts? And so when the student is sitting watching YouTube and he says, I ought to be meditating, that's an unwholesome thought. Followed by an unwholesome thought, I don't want to. Why are those two thoughts unwholesome? Because they are about an event that doesn't exist, because they're about something that doesn't exist. you ought to be meditating. I'm reading you the riot act. I'm giving you a set of rules. okay, here's a rule. you ought to be meditating right now, and then the child inside rebels against that because I would rather be watching a YouTube, except that now in this dialogue, I'm not watching the YouTube anymore. I'm busy rebelling against. I ought to go meditate. The correct answer to that is I am. So, when we remember to meditate, instead of turning it into the rule you ought to meditate, we can turn it into a nice deep breath right there in that moment. That's what's anapanasati is to remember to take a deep breath. That's all it means. Remember to take a deep breath. Yeah, just remember to take a deep breath. And you don't have to go squat on the floor in a meditation hall with a monk up front.
2: (laughs) Or a
1: statue of one. Do you personally try to keep track of every one of your breaths then?
0: Why bother? Why would I want to do that? That's not the instructions anyway. Keeping track. Wow, that sounds very apparent ego state.
1: I, I believe I misspoke. How, uh, present for each breath.
0: Why should I even want to do that? I only want to be present for the breaths that I remember. And so the, the point then is just to remember often. Remember often? Yeah, to remember often. Now, to remember often, we would phrase is to remember always, but when you talk about every nanosecond and every microsecond, that's more of the kind of an always that I'm pointing against. Rather than it's just a good idea to remember this breath.
1: When I first started meditating, I I mentioned I was trying, I was, used to be real focused on getting, getting the jhanas. I would give myself a headache because I would be trying so hard to do something all right, I'm going to think so hard about this or that or whatever.
0: Right, okay. Thinking hard is a hindrance.
1: I I gave up all that when I had that realization about pain. And Mm -hmm. it was like anger withered up inside of me and boredom Mm -hmm. withered up inside of me.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Because there is no... that's That's typical of Western meditation, and that's why it's both not what the Buddha taught and generally unsatisfying. That the kind of uh, uh, child ego state that we want to work with to get into very quickly or immediately to invite the child into being in a good state. We don't do that with critical thinking, we do that with nurturing thinking. An example of that then are the wholesome thoughts. So uh, let's back up just a moment for. For philosophical stuff. In one sutta, the Buddha says that one's right uh, effort is to remove unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in the mind. In sutta number 19, the name of the sutta is two kinds of thoughts wholesome and unwholesome thoughts. And that in there, the Buddha is very clear about that the job that is to be done right from the very beginning is to have only wholesome thoughts, which means that now our noting has a completely different quality to it. Before the noting in the Mahasi method is to note whatever's there. Here, we're going to only make a very quick note, very fast to see is this, there's this thought worth having or not. Most likely it's not, but most likely the beginner is going to say, okay that basically what happens is is that this, too, is a skill to be developed. One's right view about what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. So also one's right effort is to change unwholesome views into wholesome views and then to change thoughts from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. Okay. But in the Anapanasati Sutta itself, it goes one tiny little step further than that by declaring what kind of wholesome thoughts that we're going to have. And that is thoughts of gladdening the mind, brightening the mind, perking the mind up. And so once the sati comes in, that deep breath should should be accompanied by, what was I thinking just now?
1: what feelings that were I having at that moment too.
0: Right. What what thoughts and feelings? Well, first off, let's go with thoughts. We'll work with feelings a little bit later when we get some skill. So lots and...
1: And I think that's exactly the spot where I'm at in my practice. I think you're hitting it right on the nail, is that I, I, I have been trying to follow the eightfold path and like right view and right efforts and have wholesome thoughts. And I've been... I kind of use a mantra like... I guard my sense doors, so I guard when, like for an example, looking the at a sense field,
0: door that needs to be guarded is the sixth sense door, not necessarily the sight sight and hearing and taste and touch. And all of those senses need to actually be opened up with the guarding where the thought process needs to be closed down with the guarding so that we can open up the senses with guarding.
1: So sight is only sight.
0: Sight is only sight. Well, that's a deep teaching. That that teaching comes out of uh, several places, including the Badati Sutta, which is in the uh, 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 Udana. Where the sight is merely the sight The sound is merely the sound. Cognition is merely cognition, which means the sight is just a sight. That means that we don't freak out about what we see. And And that's the same
1: as how I view the pain.
0: Right. Is that you were not just seeing the, the sensation of the body or feeling the sensation of the body. You were adding a whole bunch of stuff to it, a whole bunch of I don't like it. One
1: time, uh my fiance looked up when I was bending up, and I had I was like, "Ugh, but the moment I fully stand up, just nothing. Like she was like, "I thought you were in pain." No. Yeah, I felt pain a second ago, but I don't own that pain. I didn't make it my own. I don't suffer from it."
0: Well, we could actually think about it that one thing as rising above it. And one of the ways of rising above the pain is by standing tall. Do you know what I mean by standing tall? That you actually try to get your full height as tall mm-hmm. as you can actually stand. Okay. Kind
1: of like how we, we always adjusting in my right. sitting.
0: This is also the way that we would uh, should be taught for sitting posture. If you're going to be sitting on the floor, this should basically many. Meditation retreats talk about it like this, as if there were a rod or a wire connected to the immediate top of the head that's pulling you straight up. And then after you're sitting up, then imagine that that wire is cut and you can relax just a little bit so that you're sitting at your tallest. But then you're relaxing a bit. See if that has any effect upon the sensations of the back. It does feel better. You just just said that before when you were talking about your girlfriend, that you actually stood up and it stopped her or at least you changed your attitude about it. And the attitude can be developed into I can take care of this. I can handle this. This is the the fourth item. We haven't really been talking about it much because you've got some background. But basically, we are practicing the Eightfold Noble Path. But we're practicing it according to the way that the Buddha taught, not according to tradition. Isn't Didn't the Buddha say
1: that he gave guidance on how to tell his teaching apart from other teachings, like uh, the seal of the Dharma? I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, I guess they're getting jumbled in my head, but I thought he mentioned before to Ananda about how to identify his teachings in the future or how future generations would be able to identify authentic teachings of the Buddha.
0: I'm pretty sure there might be a sutra like that. What did you get out of it? What were some of the things of the... Uh,
1: I can't recall any of the specific... Just, I remember that situation happening, but I I can't recall the specifics. Um, I'm drawing a blank.
0: Actually, that would be a valuable sutta to have. If you can look it up and send it to me later, I would like to hear that, because there's um, all kinds of suttas that are useful uh, in that regard. One of them, for instance, number 112 uh, is, Basically, is the Buddha's guidance on when a group of monks are together as a group and one monk comes up to them and says that he is an arahat. What should these monks do about that? I don't and, know. Okay. They would question him to find out if he, and there's a whole series of questions to be answered. Actually, it's uh, uh, six. But they only ask five questions, but the last question has uh, two distinct pieces of answer to it. So the point is, is that these kind of sutras are quite valuable. Because there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of guys out on the Internet who are claiming to be Arahat. And the right way to deal with them then is, is to present these questions to them that the monks should ask of an to see what he's going to answer. And what are the, answer, the questions? If you don't mind me asking, um, it has to do. The last question has has to do with how did you get here. The first questions have to do with, um, uh.
2: Cause and effect, sell those kind of things. Okay. But they're they're very specific.
1: I've always wondered if, about sotapanas and all that and what talking to somebody than them would be like. Because like I said before, I, I don't I've never really talked to anybody live. The the meetings I had with Yudadama were very formal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's been a lot of spare questions rumbling around in my head that I've never been able to talk about.
0: OK, well, this is not really a good time for us to go into a deep discussion on soda pie. We can do that in another time or there's also some other videos about it. But I will say this about it. And that is, is that number one is a process of the mind. That has a lot to do with confidence and eradication of doubt and eventually um, enthusiasm so that the person becomes completely free from uh, from doubt about what is and what is not the path, completely confident that he can, in fact, practice the path and he becomes enthusiastic for practicing the path to the point that he is devoted almost all the time to the Dhamma with the last cherry on top of that cake that I just gave you is, is that, and he takes great delight in the Dhamma. Okay. So that what we're talking about is a level of dedication and, and, uh, uh you could go so far as to say anybody who would actually drop whatever they're doing in their whole life and go off and be a Buddhist monk. That is a big deal when it comes to being sold upon. That's the major, I mean, how much of a big change are you willing to make? Are you willing to devote your whole life to the Dhamma, that's the sold Because there's nothing left. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who is the sold upon has to become a monk to prove it. That's not the point. But rather, the point is, is that if somebody is going to be a monk and has become a monk, then we've got to give them credit for the fact that they have devoted their whole life to the Dhamma. Or at least that's what they're intending to do. And they've got a whole lot better chance of doing it in the robes than not. But that's what a Sotapan is, is one who takes completely delight, complete enthusiasm, and is completely devoted to the Dhamma and has no doubts about the Dhamma or his ability to do it. Wow, that's that's a long list, isn't it?
1: It is a long list and I'm trying hard not to identify with those characteristics out of ego, but. I sure hope one day I could embrace it fully in all my actions and thoughts. All right. and, you
0: know. Well, let's identify that first one then in in the way that the student uh, the sutta is stating it is, is that The student understands that no matter how or how much the mind is obstructed, the the student can immediately come out of that and come into the present moment to see things the way they really are. This is a teaching that is noble. It is super mundane. It is a factor of the path and it is not held by ordinary people. This is the first knowledge. This is the first step of the noble path. Now, very few people in Western Buddhism ever make it to that first step. Many of them claiming to be Arahant and they still haven't made the first step of Sotapan. Now, all of these things uh, have, have both uh, path and fruit. And when I said the first step of Soda Pond, I was talking about path of Soda Pond. The fruit of the Soda Pond is absolute enthusiasm and absolute delight with absolute, no doubt, and absolute full confidence that we just talked about is that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can clean that out and come back to the present moment and be here now.
1: I have always wondered when I heard fruit and path, what that even means.
0: Okay. The path means is that you've got no more doubt that you can do it, but there is still more issues about doubt. But one thing is, is that no matter how obstructed the mind is with hindrances, no matter how bad you feel, no matter what's going on, you can pick yourself up, dust yourself off and start all over again. It does not matter how badly you fell down. The bigger they come, the harder they fall, you've heard. Yeah, but the big guy can get back up. That's the getting up. That's the first step of Soda Pond. Most people just lay in their misery and have a pity party.
1: Identifying with
0: it. Identifying with it. Oh, poor me. Who can help me?
1: I'm sorry I am keep jumping around to all these different topics, but it's like, since our first talk, I have a lot of different topics I kind of wanted to talk about.
0: Yes, it's a little bit hard to keep it focused on actual practice, but I keep working it back into that and going back then to we use the breath. As uh, an object, but we are also using the mind as an object, and so we go back and forth within within mind moments, so within one long breath. You can have a lot of mind moments as well as one of the mind moments of paying attention to the fact that this is a long, deep in breath and another mind moment. This is a long, deep out breath, leaving other mind moments for doing all kinds of things, feelings, thinking, observing, watching, those are the things. So, one of the qualities of the Anapanasati Sutta is that each one of the points of Anapanasati is a training. Thus, one trains oneself. And the way that, uh, for instance, gladdening the mind is stated is... As he mindfully breathes in, he gladdens the mind. And as he mindfully breathes out, he gladdens the mind. Thus one trains oneself. Okay. And then the step number nine is is that as one mindfully breathes in long, one tra- one observes the mind and, and, and inspects and investigates the mind for the contents of the mind. What is the mind doing? And as he mindfully breathes out long, he investigates the mind to see what the mind is doing. Thus, one trains oneself. So. The first thing we do is we mindfully wake up. We take a deep breath and we inspect the mind. And then if we find that it's unwholesome, we throw that out and we gladden the mind. And in fact, you could go so fast as is that we could almost uh, only take one mom- mind moment to investigate the mind. And then the next mind moment will be gladdening the mind, turn it around, take it in the, uh, uh, in an up direction. And this is actually a good point to mention that many people in meditation from the West have the idea and because of that, they use language like deep in meditation. Okay. Deep in meditation actually means kind of lost in space. This is not what Anapanasati is practicing. That's like dukkha, 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 deep into dukkha, inspecting dukkha, noticing dukkha. And it also invites sloth and torpor. Or tiredness. Why does it invite tiredness? Because people are working really hard. They're digging. Like
1: when I got a headache.
0: Mm-hmm. People give themselves headaches. They get pain tensions. They get neck tensions. All kinds of stuff. When in fact the whole teaching of the Buddha. Has to do with how to relax. Well why is it that then that people get tensed up? Is because they want something. Out of meditation. All right. But. The whole teaching of the practice of Anapanasati is, is to give yourself right now everything you want and need. Is to have it right now. Okay. Gladden the mind. Perk your mind up. And by doing that, we practice then the next aspect of Anapanasati, which is actually the word sukha. As one breathes in mindfully, one uh, trains oneself in sukha. and when one breathes out long, one mindfully trains oneself in sukha on the in-breath sukha and on the out-breath sukha okay? First thing about the word sukha is, is that it is exactly opposite of the word dukkha. It's true in the Pali, it's true in the Thai, that in fact the Thai language has uh, taken those two words in as dukkha and sukkha, but also in the Gujarati language, dukkhi and suki are opposites. So it's important to know that when we're practicing sukha, we're actually practicing the opposite of dukkha. Yeah, but so when, well, if you see dukkha as nothing more than miss, uh, or let us say dissatisfaction. Just dissatisfaction, then what Sukha means is satisfaction. So we gladden the mind to practice being in a state of satisfaction. Now, Sukha is actually a little bit stronger than that. It's got several different aspects to it, and some of these aspects are actually powers. And so, Sukha is directly related to idia in the word of idyapada. Now, in the Sanskrit, the word Idi is actually um, uh, spoken of as siti. And they mean, uh, for many people, magical powers as opposed to real power. The real power is how you feel. Magical powers is wanting to have magic so that you can feel the way you would feel if you had those magical powers. Real power is feeling that way without the magic. Does that make sense? I've always thought
1: of that when I heard about Buddhist magic. and.
0: You know the weird chapters in the Vishuddhi
1: Maga that talk about that
0: too. Well, that's all Brahmanism. All of the magic is out of religion, and all the religion that's in Buddhism came from people who brought their religions with them and parked it that. there. And that's not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha teaching is 100% practical. And so back to this issue of the power. Okay. So, one of the powers that we have, uh, and you can see that in many places on stage and on the battlefield, that when someone is fearless, they've got an advantage. If someone is cowering in fear, let's say on the debate stage, and so two people walk into the debate stage and one of them is completely competent and fearless and the other one is afraid that he's going to get beaten, guess who's more likely to lose that? debate. Okay. So this confidence is power and fearlessness is power, but Sukha is actually feeling safe and secure. So we need to talk ourselves into and find ways of being safe and secure because their only option is, is to have fear, which is the normal state of mind is to be unsettled unsure and thinking that anything that can go wrong will go wrong, I'd better start watching for what can go wrong. But wisdom would say, no, what we want to do is withdraw ourselves from what can go wrong, go into seclusion so that nothing can go wrong and then relish in the fact that right now nothing can go wrong. And I feel completely safe and completely secure and completely satisfied with this present moment. So then now, guess what? We're actually developing skills of the first jhana. We're bringing these factors together. Now, in the Pali, the word samati has a particular meaning, and it does not mean concentration. And yet Western true. Buddhism has the word concentration and focus and all kinds of stuff like that. And so I have to be very careful with those words because that's not Samadhi at all. So let's give an example of what is Samadhi and what is not. Rosen concentrated orange juice. Is that Samadhi or is that concentration? Is concentrated, concentrated orange juice. Right. How is it concentrated? By taking the water out. Right. And maybe by putting sugar in.
1: Gathering like to like.
0: But mostly the word concentration has to do with condensation or condensing, which means taking the water out. Have you ever had any frozen concentrated orange juice? Yeah. I bet you didn't. I bet you put water back in it first. I bet it wasn't concentrated when you drank it.
1: Oh, yeah, you're right. It was probably came frozen
0: in a little block. Exactly. So what you did was is that you made it samati before you drank it. It was no longer concentrated. It became samati because you added a missing ingredient. This is what the word samadhi means. It means to gather together the necessary factors. Together together the necessary factors and features, not concentration. When you understand it that way, the whole teachings of the Buddha become simple.
1: And that's when they say, like, gathering the factors of enlightenment
0: is samadhi. Well. Uh, okay, let's not go right there yet. Let's talk about it in the sense of the Eightfold Noble Path in its development. All right, because in fact, the Eightfold Noble Path is the path to what is called Ariya Samadhi. Right, noble, Samadhi which is equated with unification of mind which we have talked about in the sense of when the mind is organized correctly then the parent and the child are not arguing with each other they're in community or in commune with each other as well as they're bringing the parent or excuse me the adult into it then in fact the adult becomes the boss and the parent and the child are lovingly and happily in service to the adult. This is right organization of mind. When the mind is unified. Okay, when the mind is unified, that means that we don't want anything. If we wanted something, then we wouldn't be whole. We would be who we are minus what we want. And when we give what we want, then we're whole. But if we don't want anything, then we're already whole. If we don't want anything, then we're unlikely to go kill somebody to get it. If we don't want anything, we're unlikely to go steal it. All right? Isn't that interesting? So that means then that sila becomes the natural outcome of the noble mind that is organized correctly using right view, right effort, right sati, and right uh, the Pali is Sama Sankapa, which we're going to define here as right attitude, the kind of thinking that comes out of right attitude. For instance, if you've got a bad attitude about something, you're going to have thoughts about it that are going to be bad thoughts about the bad attitude. If you've got a good attitude, then you're going to have good thoughts about that. So if you love that old clucker, then it's a joy to ride in. And if you hate that old clucker, then all you can think about is the, getting rid of it.
1: The Liking right. and disliking is the problem.
0: Liking and disliking has to do with our attitude. So it's our attitude that needs to be fixed. That attitude then, remember the first uh, knowledge, is, is that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, the student knows that he can clean that thought out and put a wholesome thought in his mind and see how things are as they really are right now. Okay, that's attitude, the attitude of the winner. I can do this. I can clean my mind out.
1: The attitude of the winner. I like that phrase.
0: The attitude of the winner as opposed to, see, we were born and re-raised as victims. When we were children, everybody was bigger than us. When we argued with adults, they smacked us. We had to hold somebody's hand to walk across the street they put food in our mouth and changed our diapers all kinds of stuff left us in the position of being a victim and so we remain victims when we and so uh, because i got my mommy to do something for me when i was a child now that mommy is not there to fix it for me i need someone else to do it i need a helper look how many helping professions we have lawyers will help you with your Law problems. Accountants will help you with your tax. Doctors will help you with your health. And priests will help you with whatever ails you. And psychologists will help you with whatever ails you. Okay? But not all accountants solve your tax problems. Not all lawyers get you off. Not all doctors make you healthy. Not all psychologists make you healthy mentally. You see what I'm going with this? But we get as a victim in the need of help. And so we continue our whole lives looking for help.
2: Looking for something on the outside. Guess what?
0: Doesn't happen. And here's the reason why. A piano teacher can help a piano student because the piano teacher can look at what the student is doing and hear the sounds that he's making. If the piano teacher was both blind and deaf, then that teacher would not be very good at teaching the student how to play the piano. No. All right. So when a meditation student is sitting there. Only he knows what's happening inside his mind. Everyone else in the room is is deaf and blind to what's happening in someone's mind, which means no one can help you. Only you can do that. And this is, in fact, what the second noble truth is really all about. The cause of suffering is not something that can be helped on the outside. It can only be done because the real issue is one's internal wanting things that we don't have or having to put up with things that we don't want to put up with. So wanting things to come or wanting things to go, it's all just wanting. Greed and ill will is just, uh, the Pali word for it is called tanha, thirst, wanting stuff. And when we want things and we don't know that we want things or why we want them, then that's ignorance.
1: Is
2: that why?
0: Go ahead.
1: Is that why the Buddha's teaching was about contentment? Because contentment is exactly what you're saying, right?
0: Right. And with contentment, which is Sukha, become contented. Everything is okay right this very minute. There's nothing to be afraid of. An example of that, look around your room. There's no alligators on the floor. You don't have a, a, a rattlesnake in in the lamp behind you. You don't have um, uh, 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 gorillas or bears or mafia bosses with knives, nor do you have SWAT teams brushing down your door. Everything's okay right now. So why is it from moment to moment so many people feel afraid when, in fact, there's really nothing to be afraid of in this present moment? The answer is because they felt fear in the past. They know danger and they're expecting danger. Rather than expecting contentment.
1: But in fact, if you're wise, you can stay away. Go ahead. Is that kind of like what comma is? The conditioned statements of the past, the conditioned behaviors?
0: That's exactly right. That's everything about it. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about it in the sense that you've got a choice. You can either follow your karma or you can make choices to do something new. Now, what we mean by following the karma here, we can use actually the word react. Yeah. Okay, now, when we say react, we have a stimulus and reaction or a a stimulus and then a reaction means that it's the same action that's happened before so when we act and then we act that same way again we're reacting and oftentimes we react or react the way we did before even when the stimulus is different we just continue to react the same way this is our karma actually This is the habit of the mind. The way that the mind habits operate is is that we will choose to operate habitually or choose to react or choose to follow our old ways of doing things rather than to wake up and recognize that we've got a choice. The first choice that we have is to wake up and gladden the mind as a choice as opposed to leave the mind in hindrances. I want to go meditate or you ought to go meditate. I don't want to meditate. Okay. That's all hindrances, but throwing those hindrances out and say, Oh, I'm glad I remembered to take a deep breath while oh, I feel so good now. And we immediately go into contentment. Doesn't take long. It's just one mind moment. Then we change that direction. We literally turn the ship around in that moment.
1: And that's the skill we're developing.
0: And that's the skill we're developing. The skill of gladdening the mind, the skill of being in this present moment happily, joyfully, contentedly, completely satisfied. Everything right now is okay. Everything is fine. Which also has further. No work to do. No place to go. And the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. You probably heard that. Zen haiku Boucher wrote it nothing to do no place to go the spring comes and the grass grows all by itself does not need me to go mess with the grass it'll do it by itself yeah and so this is a way of feeling just contented in this very moment we need to practice this And some people say, well, if I did that all the time, then I would be in bed all the time. I wouldn't even bother to get up. And the answer is, yes, we know that. But we also know that you can get out of bed joyfully. That you can see all the world as a toy to play with. Rather than a machine that's broken and needs to be fixed.
1: And Bring that joy with you into whatever you find yourself
0: Yeah, bring your joy with you if you've got joy. So the first thing we need to do is to get some joy going. We need to get the joy juice up. We need to recognize that in this moment of joy, I've got really no problems. I've got nothing to do. I've got no disasters. Everything is okay. And this is including also keeping the body uh, relaxed and contented. So when there is back pain, we need to deal with the back pain so that we can get ourselves comfortable again. And once we're comfortable, now there's nothing to do. No place to go. Everything is done. We've gotten ourselves comfortable. But it's really not the back pain that's the problem. It's the pain between the ears. It's the thoughts, the unwholesome thoughts. Like back pain is terrible. That's an unwholesome thought. Oh, I can't stand it anymore. This hurts so bad. That's an unwholesome thought. A wholesome thought would be, yeah,
2: I can handle that. I've handled it before. I can handle it again.
0: Or it's not as bad as it once was. Yeah, it's not as bad now. Yeah, I can handle this. So these are the kind of positive, wholesome thoughts that we want to have that will eventually lead us not just to sukkah, but into that state called pity, which is really that. uh, Let's talk about it in, in this regard. Why do people go into sports, especially big time, like into the Olympics? Why do people do that?
1: To compete. To no,
0: no,
2: to do their not best, to, no, to
0: win, yes. And how do they feel when they win?
1: Probably pretty good.
0: Okay, so actually, it's not the winning itself, it's how they feel when they win, that's why they do it. How would you feel if you won the Olympics?
1: Well, I'd feel pretty good.
0: Well, why don't you feel that way now? What's preventing you from feeling that way now?
2: The mind. Ah,
0: so maybe is that too is a skill. Winning is a skill to be developed. The right attitude of being a winner. I can do this. I can handle this. I've got this wired. And that confidence grows. The Pali word for it is, is shada, or shrada in the uh, Sanskrit, all them ours again. Shada is translated wrongly as faith. The teachings of the Buddha have got nothing to do with faith. But there is a two-step process. One is inspiration. And then the second one is dedication. Okay. That inspiration and dedication are both based upon. um, uh, The eradication of doubt. Okay, and so in the beginning, the inspiration is, is that you're around others who can exhibit this and you can say, yeah, if he can do it, I can do it. And so that's the inspiration. That's basically my job is to get the students inspired enough that they're actually going to to get it for themselves. OK, so after the inspiration. Comes uh, the uh, correct practice, which leads to correct results, which leads in to a deepening of that confidence. So not only can it be done, but here I am doing it. And then the deeper competence is if I can do it in this moment, I can do it in the next moment. And then the competence comes eventually. If I can do it now, I can do it anytime because right now is a really tough moment and I can handle this moment. I can handle anything. You know, kind of tough moments there are for a baby getting a shot. That's a tough moment for a baby. But most most in Kentucky getting stopped by the cops out on the highway. That's a tough moment. Yeah, yeah, slightly. That's the time for sati. You really need to be up and awake and alert and doing things correctly. People actually become afraid of cops when the cop stops them. And some people get killed because they're afraid. Because when they're afraid, they make the cop afraid. Everybody feels the same way, and the next thing you know, things are dangerous when things don't have to be dangerous at all. Yeah. And if you recognize that, now that means that sati is really, really needed sometimes. One of the ways of thinking about it is is that sati comes first because it doesn't matter what skills you have. If you don't remember to apply those skills, I mean, you could be a Houdini or a magician or let us say a mesmerizer and you could just mesmerize that cop and everybody's really happy. But then you forget to do that and you become afraid of the cop instead. That's why sati is so important. That's why we want to develop it as a skill. And we mean by that in the skill of on the in-breath you do it. You remember, on the out-breath you do it. When we get into doing it that way, instead of saying, well, does that mean that I have to watch the breath all the time? No, it means you're developing the skill of sati because you sati is something that you need sometimes. And there are some times when it's dangerous that you really need sati. And so we're developing it as a skill so you've got it when you need it. An example of that would be when the wa- when the boss walks up to your desk. That's the time that you need some sati. When you're standing in line, no matter what you're standing in line for, when you're standing in line, that's a time for sati. Because otherwise, most people get feeling really bad and really miserable when they're standing in line. And others are just having ball. They talk to each other and enjoy themselves and everything's okay. And that's what you said,
1: like gladdening the mind in that mind moment.
0: In that mind moment. Every time that we recognize that we have an unwholesome thought, we throw that thought out and put a wholesome thought in. Have you ever heard of Murphy's Law? Yes. Do you do you know it?
1: Uh, what can go wrong will go wrong?
0: That's half of it.
1: Uh, I guess I only know the first half.
0: Right. The second half is the important half, and it will go wrong at the worst possible time. I have heard that. Okay. An example of that is, is that when you're connecting hard drives to the computer, that's its worst possible moment because you can put that connector in backwards. Unless the engineers who designed it knew Murphy's Law. And they designed it so you could not put it in backwards. In other words, they built it so that it couldn't go wrong.
1: So you're saying that the the skill is to make your mind so it can't go wrong.
0: Make your mind so that it can't go wrong when you need it the most. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong at the worst possible moment. So we need to actually train our sati to handle the worst possible moments, not every moment.
1: So to extrapolate that, then, like I've been focusing on. Uh, being mindful while I'm eating for the food. So I'm not so much liking and disliking the food, or if I am, I'm aware of it at least. So you're saying right there would be a good moment too for that.
0: Yes. Eating is a good time to be mindful of the food and mindful of what you're doing with the food.
1: For things that you really like or things that you really dislike, being aware of that, those are the moments that sati is essentially needed.
0: Mm-hmm. Noticing, I like this, I don't like that, all of this kind of stuff. And it's also a very good idea to slow things down. We could talk about food at another time. We're just getting a kind of a general overall. So yes, sati, that's what we're looking for. That's the thing that we're going to get out of today's talk, is is that sati is the most important skill, but that it only comes along with Right view. Right view actually comes first. But we've already got the right view when we think that being awake and being and, and watching what's going on, that's our view. And so right view is there. Now, can we have the sati, please? Because when we have the sati, now we take the view to see is this uh, we investigate. One's right view then, is this wholesome or not wholesome? Is this thought wholesome or not wholesome? And then one's right effort is to take the effort to change it from an an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. We keep doing that over and over and over again, and confidence grows to the point that we know that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, we can clean it out. And now we're on the path to soda pond. That's the first step, is to know that I can clean this stuff out of the mind. Well, the people who are practicing the Mahasaya Method are not even bothering to clean this stuff out of the mind. They're just noting it. it really they right, Okay, that's it. But you figured that out kind of on yourself. That's, in fact, what really does happen is almost everyone eventually figures out the dukkha na Naroda part. When it should be the foundation of the whole teaching, that you've got to throw the unwholesome dukkha thoughts out and have un, uh, and have undukka sukkha kind of thoughts. Right effort. Right effort. To take the right effort to uh, have only wholesome thoughts in the mind. One wholesome thought after another. And when you catch an unwholesome thought, recognize it as an unwholesome thought and bring it back and make it wholesome again. This is... Uh, the basic path, but as I was about to say, many people who were practicing the Mahati method eventually figure this out. That in fact, it's, you have you ever heard of the sixteen stages of insight? Yes, I have. Okay, read about them. All right. So step number six starts off with fearfulness, misery, disgust, despair, and great desire to get out of this stuff. Basically what that means is, is that someone has developed a major skill of sati or let us say of, of noting rather to remember to note, but they don't take the hindrances out. And so what they, what basically is, is that they literally move into their own city dump and everything they have is just garbage. And they could see that. That's why misery, disgust, despair, all of this crap in the mind that I keep seeing. And then it uh, develops a strong urge to get out of this, which then leads to a new form of practice. A rededication of practice to come out of the hindrances. Some people do this and practice meditation for 20, 30 years, and then they'll have a dark night of the soul, and then they make a change. Others have meditated for 50 years, and still everything that comes out of their mouth is a hindrance. Wow. And the reason for that is because they're missing that first point, and that is is that we don't start with noting. We start with, noting only to the point of throwing this stuff out. Now, there's more to it than that. And that is, is that once we have all of the hindrances out of the mind and we have only wholesome thoughts in the mind, that means that now, when we're going to be looking at Petita Samupada, or in fact, anything else is happening, all we're going to see is wholesome things. We're not going to find any unwholesome because we've already removed it from the mind. If we find something unwholesome, we throw it back out. And now all we have to do to investigate is to investigate wholesome things. This is an important point. That all that's we why have sati is hmm?
1: And That's why sati is important.
0: Right. Exactly. And also right effort to throw out the unwholesome and right view to recognize the wholesome and right attitude. I can do this kind of stuff.
1: It's almost like all pieces are connected.
0: They are. That, in fact, my good friend, Dhamma Vitu, who is a main teacher over at uh, Dham Kiem Meditation Center, he and I uh, uh, firmly agree and talked for hours, I think about three hours one time, that the Dhamma is very, very small. It's just one little thing. And yet most people think that Buddhism is so complicated I mean, there's two of that and three of those and four of them and four more of those things and five of this and eight of those and 12 of this and 16 of them things and 36 of those and four more of them things and another four of another four things and five of this. And you know this stuff. You've heard all about it by the numbers, right? And it looks like it's all very complicated. But really, we use it by the numbers as mnemonic. Or in a way of memory tricks to help us to remember. But all of this fits together that in fact, the four foundations of mindfulness and the five aggregates are exactly the same thing, even though one's got four and the other one's got five, it's still just the same thing. And that the five aggregates are uh, all five of them are in the 12 steps of dependent origination. Except that here, because our feelings are feelings of sukha and feelings of pity, we do not have fear, feelings of fear feelings of desire and wanting. Therefore, we cut it off at that point. And when the mind is, uh, is pure or when the mind only has wholesome thoughts, there is no tanha. Therefore, there is no upadana. Therefore, there is no bhava. Therefore, there is no jati. Therefore, there is no dukkha. All of that stuff doesn't happen when the mind is clean. And so actually, it's a very, very simple teaching that, in fact, the seven factors of enlightenment, the Sambojana, is nothing but the fulfillment of the skill set that is talked about in the Eightfold Noble Path. So that in the Sambojana, Mindfulness becomes unremitting mindfulness. Now, it doesn't mean constant mindfulness. It means it comes back. It does not take a break. That when you need it most, it will be there for you. This is what it means by unremitting. It keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And then the next step of the Sambojana is a right investigation which is one's right view, but when one right view is fully developed, it's unremitting investigation. Everything that comes up, you remember to investigate it. Every thought, every thought, is this a wholesome thought or not? Okay? The next one is actually right effort, and that right effort becomes uh, energetic, because it's so easy now. We're so good at it and so used to it that it's not effort anymore. Now it's just Energetic impact. The next item on the list is piti which is also jhana factors, but they're part of the Eightfold Noble Path.
1: Piti sukha is a part of the Noble
0: Path. Pardon? Piti sukha is a part of the Noble Path, you said? Uh, piti sukha, our uh, unremitting piti is the um, result of practicing pittisukha, which is part of Anapanasati and part of the Eightfold Noble Path, So the fruition would then be, would be unremitting pittisukha, unremitting joy. It just keeps coming back. It's like the Easter Bunny. I mean, it's like not the, the Easter Bunny, the not the Easter Bunny. The, uh, uh, what is it, uh, uh, um, the... Uh, Duracell, I think it was, where the body would just keep beating, okay, Um, so unremitting that way, Uh, these are the, so we can see then that the uh, uh, seven factors of enlightenment is nothing but the fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path, the way to practice the Eightfold Noble Path is by Anapanasati, Anapanasati is for the fulfillment of this, of the four foundation of mindfulness, which is also the five factors of enlightenment so we practice the four foundations of uh excuse me the five aggregates so we practice the four foundations of mindfulness through anapanasati for the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment which is the completion of the eightfold noble path and so it's all just you know uh, all in a a stir all in a whirlpool all of those things are just it's a it's almost like this that in order to fully appreciate an automobile just an automobile that you're thinking about. You have to stand on the front of it and then stand behind it and then stand on this side and then the other side, and then you open the doors and you look in and you open the trunk and you check that out and you open the hood and you check that out too, but it's still just one truck or one car, right? So that past, that teaching of the Buddha is just one teaching. It's just one thing It's a vehicle. But it's got a trunk, and it's got a lid, and it's got doors, and it's got sides, and top and bottom, and all of that. And those are the various things that we put in there. But when it all fits together, it has a function. So what we're looking at now is actually, uh, have you ever heard of, it's called general systems theory? Um, not off the top of my head, no. Okay, the major part of general systems theory is is that a system is uh, is when the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Okay. Okay, an example of that is a grandfather clock. When you have all of the pieces of the grandfather clock put together correctly, then something new is added. Beyond all of those pieces and all those gears and coils and pendulums and windings and cases and all of that, there's something else. What is the new part? Tick, tock, tick, tock. And the movement of the hands that people have the delusion to think that the clock is telling time. Actually, a clock measures distance. Doesn't measure time, but we'll get into physics later. It's measuring that pendulum, tick, tock, tick, tock. That's all the pendulum is doing is measuring distance. But it's doing it at a rate that is, um, let us say, fixed. So that the distance from here to there is exactly the same distance from here to there. And the distance to there the second time is exactly the same as it was the first time. And the distance from here to there is exactly as it was the second time that it was the first time. Any variations in that is going to give you wrong time. But then our year is only measured in the fact that the Earth is going around the sun. It's only measuring distance. And a day, all we're measuring is the Earth going around in a circle, which is measuring distance. And we called it time. Einstein was right. Time and distance are deeply related. Space time. Space time. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And I just proved it to you. But back to the clock. The clock now is whole because it is um, a system. Now it's got a new feature. Now I imagine that your front yard is covered with car parts. All of them came from the same car or uh, gathered there for the purpose. But when you take the axles and the wheels and the coach and the body and the uh, frame, et cetera, and put it together correctly, now you have something new. You have transportation. You have the function of the automobile. So an automobile drivability or transportation is part of general system theory. It's greater than the sum of the parts. The reason I'm mentioning that is because we need to do the same thing that when we get our parts integrated together, we become something greater than those individual parts. So when the mind is in unity, That means that it will function much better than when it's having an internal argument. Oh, you ought to go meditate. Oh, I don't want to meditate. Oh, you ought to go meditate, right? So that's a crowd, and we often are a crowd, but when we have unification of mind, when the mind is unified, then that means that uh, we've got everything that we need, which means now we can function as a whole human being But most people don't. Most people act like kids rebelling against adults. And they're both on the inside and they don't know it. So this is what we're practicing for is to have only wholesome thoughts, one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. And then that way we can live our lives comfortably and happily rather than the parent inside picking on the kid inside and the kid inside rebelling against the parent inside.
2: I've never heard it explained that way before. Well,
0: that's Eric Byrne for you, that's Sigmund Freud. But I think that part of the reason it's not explained that way is because I'm putting the Buddhist interpretation of it in to see that that parent ego state is nothing but a set of learned behavior. And we learned most of it when we were little kids. And then we use that information to give ourselves orders. Ought, should, uh, do, and words like that are clear indications that it's the parent ego state. You should meditate. That word should, that's it. is taking the authoritarian position. I'm the boss here. We're in, the, uh, in fact, the parent ego state should never be the boss.
2: The adult should be the boss.
1: That's a really good way of looking at it.
0: Okay, well, I hope what we've gotten done today has uh, uh, been of value to you so that you can take a slightly different approach to your practice. And then next time, Without so many questions and whatnot, we'll actually go through the actual way to to do the practice based in Anapanasati, And then after that, we can talk about Petita Sabapada.
1: I would really appreciate that.
0: Excellent. Well, um, let's finish now. And you can call back uh, generally twice a week. Once a week, twice a week would be the right time to call.
1: Okay. it w- it would be more like right at the start, like 9 a.m. ish, 10 a.m. ish. So if I did somewhere around the same time, maybe next week?
0: Yeah, that'll be okay.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I, I really appreciate it. I don't know what else to say.
0: No
2: problem.
1: All right. Well, you have yourself a, a wonderful rest of your day. And, uh, I will talk to you next week, maybe. most Most likely.
2: We'll see you. Take care.